Hi, I'm Eric Humphrey, and this is Creatives Talk. This podcast was birthed from a simple idea of giving back to the creative community. Every week I have the opportunity to speak with some of the most creative, driven, and inspiring individuals I've had the chance to meet. I hope their stories inspire you to live a more creative life. All right, I'm super excited to be here in D.C. or Silver Spring with Lori Hall for episode number three of Creatives Talk. Um, I first met Lori almost, it's been about a year mm-hmm. at their Christmas party. And ever since, we built a really strong relationship. I've been fortunate enough to work with her on several different projects. And she's just really inspiring. I mean, 10 years ago, she was a production assistant. And now she's a senior vice president of a major network, TV One. And she's led so many different initiatives, led the rebranding of the company, um, launched several new shows and TV movies. And so I just want to talk to her about her journey and her career and how she got to where she is and what drives her. All right. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. (laughs) It's nice to hear uh, someone tell me about me. (laughs) It's awesome. Thank you for being um, so great and prepared and, and, and reminding me of my accomplishments. It's really nice to talk about it. Yeah, I'm really excited. So I know for a lot of people that hear this, like 10 years seems really quick to get to where you are. Can you just give me some background on how it all started? Sure. And how you got to where you are now? Absolutely. So uh, I guess I'll start with college. Um, I went to Northwestern University for college. I started off as a radio TV film major in the School of Communications. And um, I thought I was going to be a TV producer. I thought I was going to produce films. I did shorts. I did photography, funny okay. enough. Um, and I got into a film history class, and we watched Citizen Kane. I'll never forget it. And I fell asleep. Because <laughs> it was so films. boring. <laughs> right. So it totally made me question whether that was the right path for me. Because there were so many students who were so engaged in the movie. And I was like, ugh, it was boring. And what year was this for you in college? This was probably end of freshman year or beginning of sophomore year. So I switched my major, and that was huge for me. I switched to communications because I realized I wasn't going to be Steven Spielberg <laughs> when I graduate, <laughs> nor will I make Steven's money. And so I needed something broader. And so I did communications and took a lot of marketing classes. And that's where I first fell in love with marketing. Okay. Um, so after college, uh, all my friends were interviewing for jobs, and I wasn't. <laughs> And they were also applying to law school, and I wasn't at the time. So I was late in trying to figure out what I wanted to do after school. So what were you doing? Just hanging out with friends? Yeah, yeah, you know, I had a social life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In college, I was like, as long as I'm a strong B student. I was like, you know, forget the A's. I don't need to be an A student, but that strong B, I got it. I got it. Uh, Because then I could have a party life. Okay. Um, Having balance is important. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, so all my friends were applying to law school, including my best friend. So I said, huh. Advertising executives make $50,000 and lawyers make $120,000. And I was like, ah, as much as I love advertising, I think I might just go to law school because I can make so much more money when I'm 26. Okay. So I applied to law school, got into Vanderbilt Law, went to Vanderbilt Law for a semester and hightailed it out of there so fast you could see smoke coming. Oh, wow. Um, So I left and there's a lot of story behind that, but I'm not going to go too deep into it because it's just... Extra fluff, it's fine. Um, but anyway, but I realized I realized it wasn't for, it wasn't for me. When you know 
in your gut that something isn't for you, it's one thing. But when your entire body starts to react negatively towards something, that is a clear signal that that is not your passion or your purpose. Oh, and wow. you got to listen to it. You have to. So your body rejected it. And my body time. rejected it. I couldn't <clears> sleep. <throat> I couldn't eat. I was studying so hard. I was smart enough to do it, but I just was freaking out on the inside because what I realized was if I make it through first year, I will become a lawyer because second year they just court you. The law firms do. Third year, it's easy breezy. But I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer for 10 years just to pay off loans. That's yep. not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer, but... It takes a long time to do that. So it wasn't in my being. I had to listen to my body, and I quit. But entertainment has always kind of been always. something yes. that you wanted to play in in some role. Whether exactly. It was when you first started, wanting to be a producer, to go into communications, yeah. or into marketing. Exactly. And law school was going to be entertainment law. Entertainment law all the way. And it seems kind of fluff, but I loved entertainment. So I told my dad I was going to quit. He was like, yay, quit. And I told my mom. She was like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> <laughs> So I quit, stepped out on faith, and the, the one thing that kind of changed everything for me was, or at least was the tipping point, um, I was elected as a student official for the student government, so all my peers voted for me to be class representative. The president of the student union for law school said, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh. Like, I got to have something to do. <laughs> so I ran back to my room, Googled TV internships, saw a Turner Broadcasting TV internship pop up to the top. And I went back to school, hadn't applied, hadn't done anything. And I said, I'm going to be a T3 trainee at Turner Broadcasting. That's my plan. <laughs> but you hadn't applied. I hadn't applied, hadn't talked to anybody. I Googled it because everybody was asking me, what are you going to do? After you were going to leave law school. And you were, already, you were the president of... Well, I was, I was a first-year class rep. So everybody was like, you are in a cush position. You're at Vanderbilt Law School, top 25. You're elected to student government. Like, what are you doing? Um, so I, I, I Googled that, went back. Anyway, so I um, got back home. And this is just a note about, you know having faith and, and sticking through um, hard times. So, of course, I was bummed when I got home because I didn't have a job. I was just in Atlanta. Uh, you know, I had enough of TLC all day. <laughs> and um, the, the channel, not people with tender loving caring on me. And um, I looked up Craigslist, uh, a TV internship, and there was one for a church production, a church movie. Oh, so you didn't even apply to that Turner? Nah. Internship. I, I had no experience. So, you know, I was smart enough to know you need experience. Okay. And so um, I uh, applied for the church internship for the production, and it was a craft services job, which if you don't know about craft services, it's the food job, the food and snack table. But I had to interview, and it was non-paying. Okay. So I interviewed with the girl, who I'm still friends with to this day, and she hired me for free. <laughs> and I busted my tail on that set. And on that set, this is how small of a world it is. On that set, I met a guy named Derek Deuce. And Derek Deuce was like the head PA. And he saw me bust my tail. He said, you know what? You did a great job over craft services. And <laughs> I have another job coming up with Missy Elliott for a video shoot or with the hospital for another video shoot. And so, of course, I was looking my chops for Missy. Didn't happen. He took that one, and I took the hospital one. And that kind of started my production assistant. Uh, tenure. So I did the production assistant thing, and if you've never done that before, it is the scariest thing in the world because they'll have a call time at 5 in the morning. Uh, at the time in Atlanta, um, the production community was really, really small, and everybody knew each other but me. I was okay. the outsider, and it was all guys running it. All of them knew each other. They were buds. They saw each other on set. Hey, buddy. Hey, bro. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, uh. 
<laughs> I'm here. I'm here to help. Whatever I need to do. Um, but I busted my tail on that set, and it was a woman director who everybody called a capital B, and she took a liking to me because I kept my head down and I just basically hustled while everybody else was kind of hanging out, lollygagging. So after that, I applied. Um, I don't even know how I got to. I did Being Bobby Brown. This is all right. I'm gonna wrap it up. Being Bobby Brown was a um, TV show on Bravo, the first reality show, if you will. Even Shonda Rhimes mentions it in her book, uh, uh, The Year of Yes. Wow. Was she a part of Being Bobby? She was Brown? not, but she was okay. like, that was the first reality show. Okay. And she was like, and I loved it, which I was like, oh my god, I was a part of that. So anyway, so I remember I was in a bad mood one day, and um, this was only my third production job. And Deuce calls me, Derek Deuce. He calls me and he says, hey, no, it was actually somebody else. But she said, hey, do you want to do this show? It's called Being Bobby Brown. I'm like, sure, whatever. Fine. Get to set. <laughs> get to set. And we're outside of Bobby and Whitney's house. Wow. Right? And if Your most third people, job. My third job. You're with Bobby and Whitney. So Bobby do, and Whitney. You do the production job as for a hospital thing. Yes. And then something in between, and then Bobby and it Whitney. It was a church thing for free, then the hospital, then Bobby and Whitney, right? Wow, that's pretty right? amazing. And I only had one free job. That was it. The church thing was the only <laughs> time I worked for free. Every time else, it was paid. So I show up to Bobby and Whitney's house, and most people don't know this, but I love singing, and I've sang since I was a kid. I'm not the most amazing singer, but I do okay. And for my senior speech in, in high school, I sang The Greatest Love of All, which was my my key song that I always sang, the Whitney yeah. Houston song. She was like my idol. So I show up to the house thinking, oh, it's being Bobby Brown. It's about Bobby Brown, whatever. Get in the car and they're like, we got to go pick up Whitney at the IHOP. <laughs> they're like, Lori, get in. I was like, I was like, what? <laughs> so we go pick Whitney up and I'm literally in the same room, in a private room for dinner with Whitney Houston, um, sitting down on the floor with the script supervisor, just trying to like do whatever they need me to do. Wow. So that was my third job. Is, That's pretty amazing. Yeah, being with them. And so basically I stayed with them for four months. It was a production company led by two women, uh, Wanda Shelley and Tracy Baker Simmons. And they were tough, but they were smart, smart black women. Um, and they gave us a lot of opportunities. And I didn't know how to do anything other than production assist. But every time they said, hey, and Tracy Baker Simmons would tell you this to this day. Hey, Lori, do you know how to do camera assisting? Yeah, sure. Got it. So you said yes no matter what. Said yes no matter what. She had no idea. I had no idea what I was doing. So I became a camera assistant. I was a first assistant editor. I did a bunch of stuff um, so and I stayed with them. Let me ask, when you would say yes and they would give you the assignment to become the camera assistant, how did that work? Like, did you go home and figure out what you needed to learn to do it? Was there YouTube then that you could no. videos? Like you know, it was none of that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> probably now they're like, man, we should have probably asked her. <laughs> like, what do you know? But um, I literally said to myself, can't be that hard. Can't be that hard. The camera guys, they'll tell me what I need to do. Can't be that hard. Small, okay. small production company, every hand is needed when you're on a set. When you're on a set, everybody has something to do. And if there's nothing for you to do, there is something if you just look for it. Everybody needs help on the set. So I basically just asked the camera guys what they need. So I was just there. They need me to, when they're running backwards with the camera, I'm holding them by the back of their jeans and I'm making sure they don't hit anything, you know, whatever it is. I was just there and I was just willing. And so that was kind of the story of how I became valuable, I guess, to that production company. And when I decided, you know what? I've done it for small production companies. It's like my third small production. I need to see how the big boys do it. So I applied for that Turner job finally. 
the T three job. So that T three job was still available after. You know, they did it year. They did it annually, yearly. And so I applied, and um, I literally did my research because I was like, I really want this gig. It's big company. It's TBS, TNT, all that. I need to land this gig. Yeah. It was an 11 month gig. They don't promise you a job at the end and you're hourly and it's like really, really cheap, you know, whatever. Didn't matter. You're working at Turner Broadcasting. And so I was going to apply and then I said, Laura, you need a leg up. Who do you know? So I went back to the lady that I babysat for when I was 16 who had a sister who was a writer. Uh, her name is Elise Strongman. And Elise knew this guy named Gary Holland at Turner Broadcasting who was at TBS and he was the VP of marketing called him he gave me tips about how to like pitch my project all that stuff I did it and out of a hundred people um, they only selected six and I was one of the six so how did you even know that the woman that you babysat for <laughs> knew somebody that knew somebody that knew I somebody know. that knew this guy I had no idea no idea so Veronica the woman I babysat for Veronica Strong I was like I know you have a sister who's a writer in LA that's all I know I don't know anybody else. You're the only one I know who's in entertainment by way of your sister. So she put me in touch with her sister, and I said, hey, I'm applying to this thing at Turner Broadcasting. She was like, you know what? I have a really good friend named Gary Holland. Just so happens that he's in the marketing department at TBS. Wow. And so he didn't tell me what to do. He didn't tell me anything, but he just basically said, look, um, you know, if you're going to pitch to the SVP of marketing, who was his boss, he was like, these are things you need to know. You need to come up with great ideas. You need to make sure they connect. You need to do to do this, to do, to do that. And he totally prepped me. And they ended up hiring me in that same department. Wow. Yeah. So I just want to go back to your interest in entertainment. Like, where did that come from? Was that something that, as a child, hmm. you always thought about, you wanted to do? Was it something that happened in high school? Like, where did that? Gosh, you know, that's a good question. Long time ago, and it's still kind of a secret okay. <laughs> that I hold. <laughs> I always felt extremely strong in my conviction about being able to be the next Oprah Winfrey. Always, my whole life. My nice. whole life. I always thought I was going to take over when Oprah retired. So did your parents watch Oprah? Like, was that something you, when were you even no, exposed to Oprah? I don't think they did. I don't know. It's so weird. I don't remember when I was exposed to Oprah because, you know, I don't remember watching TV that much. We watched enough, but not like a ton. I just loved Oprah. I have no idea where that came from. Nice, nice. And, um, yeah, so that there, there, there are all sorts of things, I think, that in, in everybody's life will connect. And I feel like you know that you're on the path to your purpose when things start connecting, like when dots start connecting beyond yeah. <clears throat> what makes sense typically. I know, I know. It's this Steve Jobs speech that he gave at, I think, Stanford's graduation. We said, like, as you go through your life, you'll start to realize when you look back how the dots all connected to make everything right. work. But while you're going through it, you don't realize You can't. It. Yeah. But the dots always They always connect. connect. And you and I have talked about times when dots connected, even yeah. for you, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. It, it's nuts. And I'll tell you how the dots connected for me that kind of ultimately made me stick with this as a career, marketing. When I was at TBS as a T3, um, I pitched on my, my project for my application was on Sex and the City because I just acquired it. And I love Sex and the City. I was like, whoo, great. <laughs> Easy. So I shot a commercial and I put together a marketing plan for Sex and the City. Total PowerPoint deck. Before I even knew what a deck was in corporate world. And that got me the job. And so I was working there six months. And like I said, it was an 11-month tenure. 
And so at six months, go get her Lori, you know, A-type Lori is like, well, if they're not hiring me right now, then I need to go ahead and figure out what my next step is. So I didn't have business cards. And I remember thinking, I got to make my own business cards, have a way for people to contact me when I'm at all these events and things like that for work. Um, and I was literally about to hit go on my entire plan. And my manager at the time, Heather, um, she and Nicole said, you know what, Lori, we have a project for you. Um, and they kept telling me when I would tell them, hey, I got to got to find something else because I'm not sure this is going to work out. They were like, no, just just hold on. So they went into a room, told me about this project, uh, supposedly, and as soon as they opened the manila folder, they basically had an offer for me for full-time employment. After six months? After six months. And this is supposed to be an 11-month program? 11-month program. And there was a girl who was in the department already who had been working with them for 11 months who they also could have offered that same job to, but they didn't, and they offered it to me. And she was the nicest girl ever. I, I still am friendly with her to this day, but... It was a little weird at first because they gave me the job and I'd been there six months and she had been there 11 months. But I think it was just whatever they saw in me that they felt they needed, um, they they dis made their decision. And I was fortunate for that. And so after six months, I'm here working as a full-time uh, marketing coordinator. And six months after that, my senior vice president, and if you've worked in corporate America, you know the path to SVP or the distance between SVP and a pro uh, marketing coordinator is pretty huge. I had managers, directors, VPs, everybody in between me. Yeah. But my SVP, Trisha Melton, was amazing. And she said to me, hey, Lori, there's this guy named Tyler Perry who uh, he does plays. And we are thinking about launching a TV show with him. And everybody else is busy. And I know you can knock this out of the park. Would you mind just taking the whole marketing plan and just launching the show? Wait, so let, me, 20, just, let me just something. understand this. Because it's interesting. Like, a lot of people, I'm sure, at your level don't even know who the SVP is, probably. Right. Let alone the SVP know who you are. Right, exactly. So how, what did you do to set yourself apart to be even on that person's radar? It, it pretty much was the same thing that I did when I was a production assistant, which is why being a PA was so pivotal. I just kept my head down and worked hard as hell. Like, I am a firm believer that if you just do the work and do it well, good things are going to come to you. But where does that come? Like, everyone doesn't have that in them. So where does that come from for you? Like, where did you learn mm. that you just got to work hard as hell? You know, I'm, I have four siblings, so I'm from a family of five. And my parents uh, divorced when I was 10 years old. And at 16, no, I'm sorry, at 15, I got a worker's permit to get a job because I always wanted to have my own. I always wanted to be able to pay for the things that I wanted. I never wanted to go without. And I didn't want my family to go without, more importantly. And so since 15, I've just been working my tail off just to keep my head down and, and keep it going. And at 15, I was working at Mrs. Winter's Chicken and Biscuits, scrubbing <laughs> floors, being the drive-through operator, doing every job at Mrs. Winter's that probably a 15-year-old shouldn't have been doing every single job. But I did every job because there was nothing that was beneath me. There was nothing that I didn't think I could do. And I just kept my head down and I just kept working for it. So it kind of was my DNA. Is that something that... Your father, you saw your father do, you saw your mom do, or was it a result of the divorce? And you were like, yeah, it was probably more um, a result of the divorce. My parent, my mother was a homemaker; she stayed at home with five kids. That was her choice, and it was a good choice. My dad worked hard as heck, but we didn't live with him past ten years old. Um, it was more a result, I think, of the divorce because at that time, my mom's a homemaker, so she's not making money outside of the child support she gets, and so with five kids. You know, your child support doesn't necessarily go head by head. It's kind of like an incremental inch up. So it wasn't a lot of money, and I knew that we had needs. And so I was like, you know what? 
I'm ready to get it. I'm ready to get it. I don't want to be someone that um, has to go without. I don't want my, my siblings to go without or my mom to go without just because we don't have extra money coming in. And so I always wanted to work. I always wanted to work. Wow. Yeah. And so the SVP saw in you this ability and this, this drive, yeah. and she gave you the opportunity to work yeah. with Tyler Perry to yeah. launch his TV show. It and so was, how did that go? Um, <laughs> it was funny. My sister knew who Tyler Perry was. She was like, I watch all his plays. And I was like, I've never heard of him. Um, <laughs> oh, no, so let's give some context. Like, a lot of people know who Tyler Perry is now. Yes. How, what year is this? This is 2006. 2006. So Tyler Perry was I was 26 only... years old. Tyler Perry had done plays, and they were on DVDs, and they, most of them were bootleg DVDs. Uh, so my sister had to give me a bootleg DVD to watch because I didn't know who he was. But um, he was big on the gospel play circuit, but a lot of mainstream people didn't know him. TBS, we called ourselves... Once we looked at the Tyler Perry show, we were like, oh, my God. And my SVP said this. She was so she's so woke. It's ridiculous. Even now, she's so woke. It's ridiculous. She said, we are the whitest place in primetime. Why did he even bring this to us? It's a gift. But why did he bring it to us? Yeah. You know? They were like, we need to diversify our network. We are the whitest place ever. So we need this show. Um, we launched it locally. And what's interesting is I'm 26. I am a marketing coordinator. I'd only been there for a year. And my SVP basically gives me the whole plan. I'm working with the smartest people in the organization. I'm working with other senior vice presidents in the organization, giving a presentation about Tyler Perry's House of Pain to all the SVPs. SVP of scheduling and programming, SVP of network operations, the SVP of this, that. And my boss, the SVP, Trisha, was behind me, but she let me be in the forefront and present everything because it was all my work. But so, that's a huge testament to her leadership. But how did you, where did you learn the skill set to be able to give the presentations to these, these people high up in the company, all you, these other <laughs> You know. And you're this 26-year-old girl. You know, I'm a 26-year-old I'm girl. Um, I would like to think that I was mature for my age, thanks to me working early. Um, but like I said, I keep my head down, I do the work. And then when it came to speaking, I, rem I remember the room so clearly because they were all looking at me as if, I am who they need to be listening to, which, great, awesome. But I'm 26, <laughs> yes. and I'm in marketing for a year. Um, they hammered me with questions, questions that were hard, questions that were negative, like, well, why are we doing X, Y, and Z? And my senior vice president, Trisha, stepped in when she knew it was time for her to step in, step in to manage the room. But other than that, she let me present because I knew it cold. It was my plan. It was my marketing, my my vision, my, you know, I had people helping me. It wasn't all me. It was um, several people in the network there who definitely helped me make an informed plan. But I did it. I don't know. I just, I think I just said it's time. It's I, I liken it to maybe sports. When it's game time, Step up. Yeah. The clock's going to go whether you're ready or not. The meeting's going to start at 12 o'clock whether you're ready or not. You got to just jump in. There's no other option. Very no true. other option. So the Tyler Perry Show, obviously you guys move forward with it. Yeah, so we launched it locally in 10 Mark. I mean, we launched it locally in Atlanta on WTBS. Um, it was a great plan. The numbers were gangbusters, the ratings. And um, the network decided to uh, buy 100 episodes off 
off that one test launch. So the test launch episodes off the test launch. Yes. So the test so, launch that I managed <laughs> <laughs> did so well that the network president bought a hundred episodes. So just to put some context behind that, they usually say if hundred after you do a hundred episodes, like the people on that show never have to work again because oh. <laughs> then it becomes syndicated. Right, and right, right, right. It's funny because um, right. So a hundred episodes is the is the bare minimum that you need for syndication. So once you hit syndication, you can sell that show into syndication to partners and the actors and everybody makes royalties off the show for as long as it's in a run. Yeah. So um, it was an unprecedented deal. I remember the president of the network, his name is Steve Coonan. He's uh, CEO of the Atlanta Hawks now. I was a marketing coordinator at the launch party after we did the marketing campaign and he decided to renew it. He came up to me and he said, I am so proud of you. As a 26-year-old, the president... <laughs> of TBS and TNT comes up to me, puts his hand on my shoulder and tells me he's so proud of me. And I was blown. I was I was mind blown. And he never stopped being a champion for me at the network. He was always there. So as a 26-year-old, I remember going to work with Tyler Perry and I talked to his executive producer um, or AD at the time, said, hey, I need to get in and shoot with Tyler Perry. And so he's like, okay, okay, come in. So that was Roger Bob. Roger Bob says, come in, shoot with Tyler. Here's the day and time. I, I show up. Tyler was just starting his studio. He didn't have the fancy digs that he has now. He was in a warehouse in Atlanta. And when I needed to shoot him for radio, I was shooting just audio. Um, we go into the wardrobe room that has clothes so that it padded the sound <laughs> for the interview. So he's standing in between all these racks of clothes. And we're like, OK, that should soundproof the, the room. And so I gave him the lines. And I gave him to him on a piece of paper. Now. By this time, he's, he's still, you know, new to a lot of people, but he's still Tyler Perry. Yeah. The guy who's making a multi-million dollar deal with the network. So I'm like, hi, Mr. Perry. I'm Lori Hall. I'm here to shoot radio with you. And he reads the lines. And I remember just thinking, like, wow, this is crazy. Because this guy said that he got his motivation from Oprah Winfrey. True, very true. Right? And I got mine from Oprah Winfrey. And what's funny is when I saw him on Oprah Winfrey a long time before this happened, I had a feeling that I was going to meet him. I knew. I don't tell a lot of people that, but I knew I was going to meet him or our paths would cross. Anyway, so I'm sitting there just in awe of this moment, like, wow, this is happening. And as soon as he finishes the line, he looks at me, and I'm thinking, okay, he read the line, time to go home. <laughs> and <laughs> he looks at me, he says, was that Okay. And it was like lightning struck in my head, like, oh, my God, Lori, he's looking to you to tell him if he's doing a good job. And I was like, oh. And so he did a great job. And I was like, oh, actually, you know what? That didn't work that well. I need you to read it again. I need you to, you know, put a little bit more umph in it this time. Um, because I felt like he was looking to me to give him direction. And even though he did a great job, I felt like I had to kind of assert myself in that moment. Like, oh, yeah, I am giving you direction. Here you go. Wow. Do that again. And what made you even think that, like, if he did a great job, like most people would say, oh, that was great. Or most people would, if it's Tyler Perry and you're 26, you're like, I can't tell Tyler Perry this right. is great. <laughs> and I thought <laughs> like, that. It's great. I thought that. You know what? I think that I, I'm thankful that I was aware enough to think, you know what? Even if it was the most amazing read, you always need a safety. That's something I learned from production. You always get a second read. You always get another take. Yeah. Just in case. And I, I think I realized, too, if somebody's looking at me as a leader and I'm not looking at myself as a leader, then that's something wrong with me. So I need to assert myself. If he's giving me the deference and the respect of being able to direct him, I should own that. 
Very and true. it's okay. Because the fact that he even opened that door to say, is it okay, means he's willing to hear what I want to say. So I thought that was very, it was big and gracious of him, knowing that I was a young person. I'm sure he was probably like, who's this little girl? Um, but it was big and gracious of him, and he wanted to make sure that he did the best job possible. So I wanted to make sure that I did a good job, too. So how was the second rebuild in the first? Oh, yeah, he was good. He was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I asked that because I know when it, when people are in a crowd, they say, everybody raise your hand as high as possible, and everyone mm. raises their hand, and they say, raise it higher than that, and yeah. then people can raise it higher than that. Like, right. It's, you always have more that you can achieve. You always you have a little more. bit more. Yeah. Sorry, I stepped all of you, but you always have a little bit more. So so you do the Tyler Perry. That launch goes great. Everyone at TBS loves you. Yes. The, from the president to the do. SVB. <laughs> like you're a rock star now. So what happens next? So do you get promoted? Do you? Yeah, no. So interestingly enough, so my manager at the time, she was a director. Her name is Heather. And um, my senior manager was Nicole. So Nicole and Heather, senior manager and director, right? So we were a team. Best team ever. A lot of people there did not get promoted quickly. I was at Turner for nine years, and over that course of time, Heather, Nicole, and I were all senior directors at the same time. Wow. A lot of people didn't get promoted very quickly. There were people there who were older than me, more quote-unquote mature than me, um, that didn't get a promotion, and I did. So there were a couple of steps that I, I made. So one of them was... I always look for opportunities that would come naturally, right? So I kept my head down, did the work. I didn't complain. I didn't even ask for a raise, to be honest, any of the years I was there. I didn't ask for a promotion any of the years I was there. They offered it because they saw how hard I was working. And I'm, I'm a big believer in if you're working hard and you are giving value to your team, they're going to recognize it. And if they don't, then you make your own decision and, and bounce. It's okay. Yep. I always, I always said this because when, when you know you get promoted very quickly, sometimes it can be a target on your back. People think, oh, she's favored. Oh, they like her more. And I always say this: you are in control of your own destiny. You are in control of your own career. If you don't like where you are, leave. And I've always felt that. And so they gave me more projects. They gave me other projects. I didn't work just on black projects. I worked on Cougar Town and Rizzoli and Isles and Hawthorne with Jada Pinkett-Smith, who was fantastic to work with and to work for. Jada and Will were awesome. You know, I did a lot of launches, and then the VP of marketing said to me that she wanted to break out and create an emerging markets marketing unit as a business proposition. She's like, look, black audiences are valuable, and we need a, a unit dedicated to recruiting new audiences, like black audiences. And she wanted to start with Black because she came from McDonald's as um, senior marketing manager in general, but she worked on Black audiences in particular. And um, she asked me to start the business unit with her. And what's funny is the guy that hired me told me it was a mistake. Not to do He had it. already gone. He left the company. He said, don't do that. That's a mistake. Why would you pigeonhole yourself? And I said, you know what? I really feel good about this. And he's like, it's a horrible decision. Don't do it. I did it. So what made you decide to take the job with Vicky versus listen to your old boss's advice? Well, I knew that she was really smart. I knew that I could learn from her. And if she was ballsy enough to blaze a new path, I was going to be ballsy enough to follow and to help her do that. And the other interesting thing is, at that time, because of all the work I did with Tyler, and by the way, I launched every single Tyler Perry show 
that ever came through TBS. Every single one, I was the lead on it. I was the marketing lead. I was the primary contact. To start a business unit that was dedicated to African Americans, the only show we had was Tyler Berry shows. In essence, she kind of needed me, but I also needed her. Because she had years on me and experience on me, and we needed I think we needed each other. And I was blessed enough to um, be the person she asked to help do that. And we did it, and we did a great job. We kept at it for, I want to say, like a year or two. And that entity folded, ultimately. Um, she ended up at Cartoon Network, which was great, within the Turner brand. And I went back into general marketing. So it was a pivot. And I think that in life, you have to look for the pivots. It's not always going to be the straight path to your destination. It's rarely going to be a straight path to your destination. Look for the pivots that will be somewhat of a pause, but it's still a pause in the upward direction. It just doesn't have to be straight. Let it be jagged. Yeah. <clears throat> you still get where you want to go. So talk to me a little bit about um, some challenges that you face over this time. Like, I know it wasn't all just rosy and everything was like <laughs> super successful. And maybe it was. Of course it was. <laughs> no. But I want to hear about, tell me about some examples of things where it went wrong and you had to like figure it out from there or where it got really tough. Wow. There were times at Turner that... Um, Anytime you're, anytime you're working in a matrix organization or an organization that has hierarchy, um, especially as a young person, when you ascend quickly, when people kind of denote you as a rock star, yeah, it puts somewhat of a target on your back. I was promoted every year and a half to two years. Didn't ask for it. They saw value in me. I worked hard as hell, and I got promoted for it. Um, but it can sometimes put a target on your back. So much so that when I would make a misstep, it would become a huge issue. So I remember there were a couple of times where I heard through the rumor mill at work that somebody was talking, you know, crap about me trying to shirk off responsibilities or push things back on somebody. And those little blips, as much as you don't want to feed into the beast of the rumor mill and, and feeding into people's negativity, you have to squash those things quickly so squash it early and often and I remember thinking to myself I was bummed one time and I was like oh my gosh this person who's higher than me in rank in another department is saying all this stuff about me what am I gonna do this is horrible she's never gonna work with me but beyond that she's gonna spread all of these rumors about me um, and it came from a conversation about who was gonna take the lead and I kind of pushed it on her because I felt like it was her responsibility and I said to myself I said self Sometimes you got to eat dirt. It doesn't taste good. You don't want to. Sometimes you got to eat dirt for the greater good. And I basically pulled myself out of my chair, walked across the hall, which I never did to go see her, sat down, and I said, Hey, I heard that, you know, you thought that I wasn't taking ownership of X, Y, and Z. And I just wanted to kind of clear it up because I wanted to make sure you and I were on the same page. I just felt that this was more of your responsibility. But if you thought it was more of mine, let me know. I just wanted to hear you out. The art of doing that is critical <laughs> in life, no matter what you do. Because I could have easily said, hey, I heard you were talking about me, and that's not the case. That's one option. Or I could have just not done anything and let it fester and let her go around and, and ruin my good reputation. Yeah. <clears throat> but I chose a third path, which is the best path, and let's go and clarify. We might still disagree, 
But at least I want to say that wasn't my intent. And that's a phrase I use often. When people come to me and they say, well, you said X or you did Y. If it wasn't my intent, that's the first thing I say. I said, that was not my intent. My intent was for us to get to a good place with this project. My intent was not to upset you or to make you feel like I was dumping on you or whatever. Be clear about your intent, right? Because I feel like if you can clarify your intent, then maybe you guys can get to a common ground. And so that situation that happened at Turner, she and I became good after that. It sucked in the moment. It sucked so badly. And I didn't want to go to her because I felt like I was completely in the right. But I felt like my reputation was at stake. I felt like my work relationship was at stake. And I was going to have to work with her as long as I was there. And it was too... Too, there was too much to lose for me to just sit back and not do anything. So and that's happened often. The greater good. And you humbled yourself. You walked yeah. across that hallway and had a conversation with her. Absolutely. To get to a better place for the organization. It happens everywhere you go. It happens at every stage in your career. You will have days that are crappy. I've had days that are crappy here as a senior vice president. And believe me, as I'm 36 years old, young 36, <laughs> I'm <Very> laughing. <laughs> I'm 36 years old and I'm the senior vice president of TV One's marketing department. That's almost unheard of. I remember looking at a 35-year-old senior vice president of marketing for Warner Brothers and like, oh my God, I want to do that. I want to be there. At that and age. you are here. And I am here, right? <laughs> but with that comes, you know, is she good? She's so young. She doesn't know what she's doing. Those types of things are naturally going to occur in people's minds. That, those things are not the things that you should worry about. Let people have their thoughts. Those are the things that you are supposed to address as a person. The things you address are the things that you are accountable for. What you said, what you did, how you reacted or behaved, right? So in situations even present day that I've had where it's been a crap day and I feel like someone and I are not on the same page and it's, it could potentially ruin our relationship and we have to work together, I let myself be down about it for a day. I give myself a day. It's going to be crap. It's going to be crap for a day. But then I'm like, the next day I got to figure out how to solve it. And I think that's been my philosophy my entire career is give yourself a day. Give yourself a time period. One day, max, and I can I can mope about it. I can be pissed. But the next day I got to posse up and figure out how to tackle it because there's much more at stake than just this situation. Very true. Have there ever been launches or productions or projects specifically that you've worked on where the launch didn't go as planned, the production got delayed, just those type of issues? Yeah. There will always be those things. When you market things, and a lot of times in jobs, it's a team effort. If something did go wrong, it might not be solely on my shoulders. So if a production is delayed, that's my production team. If it's um, something didn't work out well with the marketing campaign. That might be me or it might be three other people too. Um, I know I've had down times. I just can't think of them off the top of my head. Um, but sometimes, like as you go up the food chain in this type of career, ratings are everything, and you want to make sure that you give shows the best chance possible. So I'll tell you, for here, I came in as a new SVP in June 2015, and I'm responsible for picking up where the last team left off in the middle of things still happening. So I had to hit the ground running. People say it's like building an airplane in the air while you're flying it. Oh, wow. So that's, 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 <laughs> that's pretty difficult. accurate, but it's accurate. 
So I created a marketing plan for this one particular program. And the year before, the marketing plan was $400,000 less than what I decided to spend on it. And it was a huge tent pole, um, but the ratings ended up coming in very low. And you guys spent $400,000 more than you did the year before. Right. But there were things that happened in the network, such as one of our stable programs was no longer on the network. Um, and that made a lot of viewers leave because they loved that show and they could no longer find it on our network. So they ended up not coming back to TV one. Um, so that was a huge upset to me because I'm trying my best to market it. I spent more than what they spent the year before. I'm trying to figure out the best tactics and still it came in underperforming. Uh, at the end of the day, we realized it wasn't because of the marketing. Had there not been marketing, we would have been even worse. But it doesn't um, negate the fact that when you're down, you're down. So a loss to the network is a loss to every team. Yeah. So I, it's hard to, to qualify an example based on what I, I might have personally done because it's such a team effort that when something doesn't work, everybody feels it, including me. And I take it on my shoulders, like, what could I have done better? I'm sure every other department and every other um, department head feels the same. And so in situations like the one you just gave, what did you? What were some of the biggest things you learned from that? I think I learned to do, um, to just dig deeper in the historical research, um, but also understand that times change. Viewership changes, people change, audiences change. We have Snapchat now, we didn't have Snapchat couple years ago or three years ago <laughs> we have um, all sorts of things that people are are doing now that I have to compete with them for their time my competition isn't just like a BET or a WeTV or a Bravo or a Lifetime my competition is Instagram yeah. my competition is Facebook my competition is anything that takes your attention away from you right before I'm trying to get you to watch something on my network or on one of my platforms so Everything's evolving, and so I give myself a healthy amount of flexibility in terms of things are shifting, but it means that we have to do a better job of mining those insights and figuring out the trends. Like, what are people doing? What's now taking up people's time? If I didn't know about the mannequin challenge, then I'm yesterday. If I didn't know about the Andy's Coming challenge with Toy Story, then I'm like, you know, ages ago. You have to just keep mining the insights. Keep your ear to the ground. Keep your finger on the pulse. Stay, in, you know, in tune with what your audience wants. Because unless you know that, you're sunk. So this is a good segue. Um, where do you see the future going for television specifically? So there's a difference between anecdote, right? So stories that people tell you and what's true in terms of actual data. Um, people, are, Mobile is on the rise. Don't get it twisted. Mobile is coming for us. <laughs> it's <laughs> happening. Um, but it still has not overtaken live TV viewing and TV viewing. So if you start to look at uh, your TV less as the destination and more as a display, and your phone is a display, and your iPad is display. What you think of as TV is really now becoming content. And it just depends on what device you want it displayed on. So live TV, there's a st study by Nielsen that just came out recently that I was pouring over today and have been all this week. Um, with African Americans, live TV is still the predominant way people watch content. Live TV. Huge. Mobile. Um, 
is a fraction of that, but, but it's growing. It continues to grow. Um, social, gaming, etc. those are also small, but they're growing. So I think that people sometimes don't distinguish between growth versus actual total viewing. So in terms of total viewing, live TV on your actual TV is still predominantly the way that people watch, especially African-Americans. Mobile is growing rapidly. Um, consoles and, and things like that are growing rapidly, but they're still not overtaking live TV. Got it. So I, I do think that if content providers like TV networks, other content providers, do not quickly um, gain the rights to display their content across all platforms, if they haven't already, then they're going to be sunk. People now want to be able to watch what they want to watch, wherever they want to watch it, whenever they want to watch it. Look at Netflix. Netflix yeah. <clears throat> is the best case study I've ever seen in my life. They had a DVD business. They did. They, I forgot about that. <laughs> exactly. They overtook Blockbuster. When I was in law school at Vanderbilt, I used to walk to the Blockbuster to see what movie I wanted to see and to check out the VH, not even VHS, DVD. I'm not that old. I'm 36. <laughs> not that old. Hey, I'm 36. Um, the DVD, and I would check it out. And you would get late fees and all that stuff. Um Netflix destroyed Blockbuster as a complete business. Destroyed it. DVDs destroyed the VHS tape. You cannot find a VHS tape today. You cannot. You cannot. <laughs> you can't CD find a DVD now. <laughs> the, the CDs, the, the disc players, destroyed cassette tapes. You can barely find that, right? So businesses evolve. The way people consume things evolve. The winner of it all will be the, the company, the entity, the brand that can change as the times change, that can be on the front end of leading the change as opposed to everybody else. Netflix was on the cutting edge. They had a DVD business, and then as they saw that, that Blockbuster was demolished by their business, they were like, look, we can offer live streaming too. So then they had their streaming business, not even live, streaming business and DVD, and their streaming business quickly took off. In the DVD business, it was good, but it wasn't as great as the streaming business. So then they had a decision to make. Do we stay with the DVD business? Because we have to press DVDs. We, have, we spend money on the actual DVDs and the production of that. Or do we do streaming, which we have no production costs, you know, but we can do more things with. And they quickly moved toward the streaming business. Um, so Reed Hastings made the decision to push forward with streaming. And now... Netflix creates original content. Netflix is competing for Oscars and Emmys. Netflix is leading the revolution <laughs> in terms of content. So if you can think of content less as the display it's on and more as the content itself being able to be displayed on any platform, you'll be able to stay in this business. The challenge is going to be who's going to create the next revolution. Nobody saw Netflix coming. You didn't see that they were going to be a DVD business that ended up making original content and winning Oscars <clears throat> and Emmys. Content is king. Content is king. doesn't matter where it is, but content is king. And figure out your distribution platforms. The way you distribute is everything. TV is distributed through the cables that we have, right? So the internet that everybody has is able to pass through all the content that we're trying to get out to everybody. Where all can you be distributed? How can you be distributed? How quickly can people access you? Through their mobile phone, through their laptop, through their TV? What are the next displays going to be? The hardest part that I think content providers have is we don't know what we don't know. But you still got to be, 
ahead of it. So coming out with something fast, good, that the consumer connects with is always important. Yeah. And how do you do that with television? It's hard, right? So in television, you have a development cycle. So you get, you get scripts, you get ideas pitched to you, you have to develop those scripts, have a writer's room, um, and then go into production. Production will take a certain amount of time. So even if something is happening immediately that's trendy, you almost can't take advantage of it in a typical TV production cycle because that might be six months to a year of delay between that trend happening and when something can actually go on screen. So I think the important thing for TV networks is to monitor trends, monitor what's happening, but also not um, buy into trends too much because it will date your content. So if you're doing something, let's say, for example, the Mannequin Challenge. If you do the Mannequin Challenge in an episode of Being Mary Jane or an episode of Ricky Smiley for Real, if you do it today because it just happened this week, when the show airs in six months, it's going to be passe. It's going to be old. So you can't take advantage of trends per se if they're just quick trends. You have to look at the longevity of things. So in TV, it's a little bit different from consumer products. Consumer products, they look at a need that's not being met and they fill it. We do the same thing in TV, but in TV, we look at broad themes that will be everlasting um, will be relevant not just today but in six months and a year and two years and three years because we're thinking about a series and we're thinking about a series in terms of the launch the second season the third season the best example of that is Insecure with Issa Rae brilliant show amazing show uh, you gotta get to episode three or four and you will fall in love completely and you will be totally devoted to it but um, the first two episodes were cool too it's just that it gets better as you go fourth that show, Issa Rae saw a missing voice in content that's targeted to black people. A missing voice, especially black women. So she knew it was missing. She started off with Awkward Black Girl. That was her YouTube video channel. And it's still missing even today. So now she has Insecure on HBO, and she's fulfilling that need for that type of content because we've had a void. We have nothing that speaks to the young African-American um, experience in terms of women, dating, relationships, etc. right? Because a lot of times what networks do is they kind of pander to the audience. They're like, oh, this is what a black woman likes and wants, and here it is. They have no room for flexibility, no room for a woman who's extremely smart and clever and has real-world world problems and attacks them in a different way than what's expected. So I think she's a great example of that. And I think all content providers need to look to what voice is missing and what voice has been missing and how can we deliver that in a way that's authentic, that's relevant, that is not pandering to the audience and that's gonna be able to be replicated in years to come. How do you apply that to the things you do in your in your position. So I'm big on consumer insights. I think that any marketer worth its saw, uh, worth his or her saw, is always thinking about the consumer first. I can't market in a vacuum. I can't market based on what I like. It's not about me. I have preferences. I happen to be in the demo for my own network. But I have to think about what does our core audience want? 
What are they dealing with every day? What do they like? What do they hate? What makes them excited? What makes them feel like this is absolutely relatable to my life and I'm not looking at this content as a show, I'm looking at it as you're helping me live my life because now I'm seeing things. Um, so we do a lot of focus groups. We do a lot of um, consumer insights. My friends probably hate it, but when I talk to them, I'm like, what do you think about this? <laughs> <laughs> because I want to know their real thoughts. <laughs> there is no greater testing ground for me than somebody's real thoughts. And I love that. I always tell people that my job is 70, 75% psychology and 25% marketing expertise. I'm literally trying to understand the psyche of people every day. And then just going back to the point of staying connected to what's happening and to trends and things, how, as a television network, are there ways or there avenues for you to integrate what's happening right now? So, say it's a mannequin challenge, right. or now the, I, I don't know what it is, the gospel woman that sings about all the food during Thanksgiving and everyone's Beans, doing greens, it. potatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> Come on now, not the gospel woman. Pastor Shirley Caesar. Oh, Sarah Caesar. Yes, yes. Pastor. You, pastor, how do you integrate that and stay relevant with, or is it possible to stay relevant? You know, I, this is what I tell my team. We have to market our things like we're fans of our own network, fans of our own content. Don't bring me a marketing idea if it seems contrived or prescriptive. You better market that thing as if you were sitting at home and somebody gave that to you and you were like, yes, excellent. I don't want anything less than that. I don't. It's so easy to try to grab onto trends and to popular things that are happening just because, oh, they did the mannequin challenge. We're going to do it. But if your heart and soul and gut is not in it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't. You can tell consumer. Here's the thing. I say this all the time. Consumers are savvier than people think. Viewers are savvier than people think. You are savvier than network heads would think. So you know when you're being marketed to, quote unquote, right, with the air quotes, versus somebody gave you some amazing content that's just hilarious and awesome. You want the stuff that's hilarious and awesome. You do not want to be told where to watch, when to watch, how to watch today. Nobody wants that. We want freedom. We want great stuff just because it's great. I want the Kermit the Frog memes because they're hilarious. <laughs> I want the Thanksgiving clapback memes because they're awesome. I want, you know, Being Mary Jane. I'm a fan of that show. It's my competitor, BET. I'm a fan of that show. I want that. I want Insecure because it relates to me. And I get to see Issa Rae's character and the character Molly be like me and my girlfriends. Like... I want something that's real. I think in a world where everybody's being marketed to, the thing that's going to stand out is authenticity and realness. So true. And it's almost the hardest thing to get to, though. It is absolutely the hardest thing to get to. And after working at multiple networks like Turner, Up TV, TV One, um, you have to figure out what's authentic to each of those audiences because those audiences are different. At the different networks, the audiences are going to be very different, and you have to figure out how do I remain authentic to those audiences given that they're so different and they have different mindsets and different needs and different lifestyles. And your job as a marketer, my job as a marketer, is to understand who that core viewer is and 
what motivates them to consume anything, whether it's Coca-Cola, TV, XYZ. That's my job. And then I have to figure out how to serve something up to them that's authentic and real. So you mentioned Up TV and now TV One. Uh, how did that transition happen from the amazing experience you had at TBS to go to actually leave? Well, TBS was the most amazing place to work and probably still is, I have no doubt. Um, I still have great relationships there. So by the end of my tenure at Turner, I was working across TBS, TNT, and TCM networks, all three. They collapsed our marketing groups, and so we worked across all. At nine years in, I ended up being on a panel with the current president of TV1, Brad Siegel, and... I got on the panel by happenstance. So an agency that I hired in Atlanta called Liquid Soul Media, the guy who heads up that agency's marketing is named Nick Nelson. Nick said, hey, Lori, I need a VP or hire um, at Turner who oversees African-American marketing or African-American media, anything related to African-Americans. I need them to be on my panel for the American Marketing Association. I said, hey, Nick, no problem. But we don't have anybody that's VP or higher anymore. Uh, a lot of people left Turner, and some people um, were let go. Um, and so we didn't have anybody that was VP or higher at the time. And so I said, let me know how else I can help you. I, I just don't have anybody that's VP or higher. And he said, wait a minute, can you do it? Because you launched all of Tyler's shows. And I said, more than happy to help. No problem. When you work with good people, they sometimes become friends, and that's the case with Nick and Look at Soul Media and Terrell. Um, those are the guys over there. And so I ended up being on the panel. Brad Siegel was on the panel. Roger Bob, the guy who first put me in touch with Tyler Perry, wow. was on the panel, who I'd worked with for six years to launch all of Tyler's shows, and he was a good friend. And then a music industry guy and somebody else. So we were all on this panel, and... I literally prayed that this panel opportunity would be a way for me to showcase my skills to Brad Siegel. Brad Siegel, who at the time was vice chairman of UpTV. Previous to UpTV, he was the president of Turner Broadcasting. But he and I missed each other when I came. So he left before I came to Turner. But he was the president of Turner. And so I said, oh, my God, I hope and pray that he thinks that I'm smart and well-equipped and that this could be something great for my future because to learn from someone who ascended to the heights of president of Turner Broadcasting, that's huge. We were on the panel. We jived. Everything I said, he agreed with. Everything he said, I agreed with. And that was natural. It wasn't me trying to pander or anything. And Roger Bob kept saying, if you guys want the best marketing in the world, you better call Lori Hall. <laughs> so Roger Bob kept fueling the fire, too, and I was dying laughing. At the end of the panel, um, Brad comes up to me, and he basically says, hey, would you like to have coffee? I, you know, I loved your thoughts. Would you like to just go and talk further? I'm at UpTV. I would love to pick your brain. What I didn't know is that his wife, Jill, Jill um, Siegel, said, you need to hire that girl. What did his wife know about you? Nothing other than she saw me at the panel. <laughs> she saw me at the panel and she was like, oh, you need her. Wow. And I will forever be thankful to Jill. She's fantastic. Smart woman. Very smart. And he and I went to Starbucks and he said, are you interested in leaving Turner? And I said, I'm always open to hearing what there is out there. 
And he basically told me what they were looking for at UpTV. And I went back and I thought about it. And I thought, wow, this could be great. Smaller network. So I would be able to be involved in a lot more meetings and discussions about how the network is running versus being siloed. Because uh, at Turner, you have so many people there that everybody kind of has their own function and you kind of just stay in your function. Um, so I was all gung-ho, ready to go, and at the last minute, I was like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> Turner is amazing. I have an amazing life. The culture there is amazing. The people there are amazing. The president knows my name. Why would I leave Turner? And a girl on my team who worked for me took me out to lunch the day that I had to tell UpTV whether I was going to interview formally. And she said, Lori, think about this. In two years from now, if you stay at Turner, where will you be? If you go to UpTV, where will you be? <laughs> she said, if you go to Up, you'll have two years of VP experience under your belt. And you can go anywhere from that. If you stay at Turner, you'll probably still be a senior director. And that's okay, but you won't have the VP experience. And that conversation with Carmen that day for my team changed everything. Because I was literally supposed to talk to UpTV at 2 p.m. And she and I went to lunch from 12 to 1.30. Oh, wow. And I was going to tell Up no. And I ended up telling them, yes, I'd like to interview. And it ended up being one of the best interviews I've ever had because I had nothing to lose. I talked to the president of the company, not Brad, but Charlie. I talked to him, brought my resume, sat back in the chair when I went into his office and literally leaned back and looked at him like, tell me what you got. <laughs> what what you trying to offer? Because, you know, I'm good. I'm great. You guys need me more than I need you. And I can't describe the feeling that I had that day because it felt amazing to be in the driver's seat. And I think that people should approach all job interviews like that. Like, they're lucky to have you. Exactly. So they should be telling you why you should want to work for them. Sure, give them all the stuff that you can bring to the table, but don't get it twisted. You need to tell me why I should come here because obviously you need to court me as well. Oh, who is it? I watched um, a director give a speech and her name will come to me and I'm going to be embarrassed <laughs> when it does. But she says a lot of people walk around with like this coat of desperation on them. Oh my gosh. And it can, and you pick up on it. Like yes. whether you want to present it or not, like if you have that coat of desperation on you, like people pick up on it. It's like dating. If somebody is desperate and clingy, you are going to know it yeah. immediately. But if they're good... You're almost intrigued because they don't need you. I might need you, so tell me more, right? And I think you have to approach job interviews like that. It's like dating. It's like courting. If you can help it, you should never look for a job when you're desperate. Look for a job when you're in a good situation. It seems counterintuitive, but my good friend's mom told me that a long time ago. And she was like, I, and she was in HR. She was like, I keep my resume updated. I stay talking to people when I'm in a good situation. Because I don't want to wait until I'm in a bad situation. Because at that point, that air of desperation is all over you. It is. So stay when you're in a, Because think about it like this. If you're interviewing and you're in a good position where you are, there's you have nothing to lose. Nothing. The ball is in your court. And that's powerful. So you followed him up TV. Yes. The experience was great. And then Brad came over to TV1. He came to TV1. So he came to TV1 in December, I want to say, December of 2014, maybe? And I just launched a viral video. I wanted it, go, wanted it to go viral. I didn't know if it would go viral, but I hired a guy to help me do it. And um, 
my goal was a million views for the video. And I told everybody at the network that my goal was 100,000 views. Because they had never seen 100,000 views on a video. But your goal internally was a million. You always have to have your own goals. Have your own goals. Don't tell anybody about them. Have your own goals and hit your own goal. Tell everybody else the manageable goal. Okay. Under promise, over deliver. Yep. The video that I created did a million views in 24 hours and 43 million views in a week. They had never seen more than 50,000 views for any video they ever had. So anyway. What was this video? It was a Christmas video. It was, so basically, the best form of flattery is imitation. There was a WestJet airline commercial that was done that was all around the holidays. And it was so beautiful and impactful and, and awesome. And it went viral. And I was like, oh my God, I would love to do something like that. The president of, um, of TV told me, hey, we should do something to give back to people during the holidays. So he basically, the first year, told me, do this. Give back to people who are in need. So I did all this work. I talked to organizations who work with people in need. And I tried to give them what they needed. And we did this video. It was okay, but it was kind of weird because we were playing it kind of light and funny. And the video was very heavy because people had serious needs. And I felt horrible in my soul because I was like, I would see these people who wrote down, I need a hot water heater. I need, you know, rent. You know, you can't provide everything for people who have dire basic needs. And I felt like we weren't doing enough. It was a very bad feeling. And so the second year I said, you know what? We can't solve all the problems of the world. I think we helped people in need, and that was great. But if we're trying to create something that's a wonderful piece to kind of spread the spirit of giving, don't try to hamstring it too much. Let the creative be what it's going to be. So I saw the WestJet commercial and I said, let's do something like that. So the video that we did was, <laughs> I'll tell you, I said the one thing the video has to have is, one, it can happen to anybody. Two, they're shock and awe. Three, it's delightful. And so I decided with my producing partner, Rob Bliss, I said, we need to create something with cops. Because anytime somebody's pulled over by the cops, you are freaked out. <laughs> Even before all of the bad stuff that's been happening with cops, you were freaked out, right? So whenever you're pulled over by a cop, you never have a good feeling. It's always like, oh, crap, what did I do? And instead of the cops giving tickets, we wanted to give Christmas gifts. But we wanted the Christmas gifts to be exactly what that person wanted or what their kids wanted or what their family wanted. So we went to Michigan, worked with the local police department in Lowell, Michigan, and uh, the police guys had body cameras on, and we had a team at the store down the street, thanks to our producer. And as soon as he pulled somebody over, he would say, so what do you want for Christmas? Oh, I don't want anything. My kids want a skateboard. So our teams at the store would get a skateboard from the store, wrap it up, shoot it over to the cop, and then as the cop goes back to run the license plate, he comes back with the skateboard. Oh, wow. And so we did that over and over. Funny thing is, there was a snowstorm in Michigan at the time in November, and it wasn't supposed to be a snowstorm. And it ended up being beautiful, but we were stuck for a day because we couldn't shoot. So <laughs> so anyway, viral video happened, and it was awesome. Just Google Lowell, L-O-W-E-L-L, Police Department, Christmas video, and you'll find it. I'm going to definitely link that up in the notes. You got to. It's really cute. But um, anyway, so I did the viral video. Brad left, and... I sat there at Up TV thinking, God, I need to go to TV One. Brad, amazing guy, amazing marketer, white Jewish man. 
I can help you. <laughs> You're going to an all-black network. I can help you. I never wanted to do black marketing, to be honest, um, because I was worried it would pigeonhole me, like at Turner Broadcasting. But at the end of the day, I felt very passionate about coming to TV One. I was like, this is where I need to be. With Brad leading it, me as the marketing head, we could do gangbusters. And I felt so convicted in my soul that I asked Brad for a meeting. Now, he was already at TV One. I asked him for a meeting, and he agreed. And I went to his house on a random weekend. And right before I went to his house, my mother called me, and, and I told her about this. And she called me. She said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm getting ready to go to Brad's house to talk to him about this job. You're not still thinking about that job, are you? You don't need to be in D.C. That's not where you need to be. You need to stay in Atlanta, but you can go and talk to him or whatever, but nothing's going to come of it. Oh, wow. My mother, who loves me to death. My tells mother. Tells not to take the meeting tells me not, not to, to even think about it. I was hot. I was hot. I told her, I said, don't you ever call me and tell me not to do something like that. I am preparing for the biggest conversation of my life. Absolutely not. Do not do that. And, and you were extremely out. close with your mother. I Oh, I love my mother. My mother is like one of my best friends. I love her to this day. Doesn't mean we don't disagree, but I love her to this day. And I knew that she was scared. And she admitted later that she was just scared of losing me. And she actually got me a cup that said, follow your happiness later. Because then she ended up supporting me in my move. And she was like, this is great. She was like, I'm so sorry I reacted so badly. I was just scared of losing you. Because I've been kind of a staple in my family and bringing our family together. But she had to realize that I was I was still going to be home. I was still going to be the same person I was always to her in the family. So anyway, so I went to go talk to Brad and um, I pitched him. I said, hey, I don't know what your plans are, but I know I could rock out the marketing for TV One. And I want to do that. It's in my gut. It's in my soul. I know this is where I'm supposed to be. I want to help you drive your vision and lead that network to the promised land. And he said, thank you so much for coming to me because I couldn't come to you because of his contract and things like yeah, that. Yeah, not compete and all that. Mm-hmm. And he didn't compete. He, didn't, he never came and got me. I stepped out on faith. And wow. here I am. So what gave you the confidence... To even step out on faith, like, to know, to even go and pitch him. Like, he wasn't looking for you. didn't know there was an opportunity to open him. Like, Nothing. What was it that made you say, I'm going to go meet with Brian? I think my gut, I, in my gut, I was just convicted. I was convicted. Sometimes in life, you'll just feel convicted about something. And you got to listen to it. I was scared to death. <laughs> I was scared to death <laughs> to go talk to him. I was nervous. I was scared. Um... But I couldn't let that trump my conviction. And so I just followed my conviction and went to go talk to him. At the end of the day, the worst thing that could happen is he says, nope, I'm good. I'm still breathing. I'm still alive. But so many people get stifled by fear and just the thought process of what could go wrong. Yeah. Like, how did you overcome? And it seems like throughout your whole career, like, you've always been able to overcome those barriers of, like, not being stifled by what could go wrong. Well, I don't want I don't want to pretend like I'm not stifled. <laughs> I'm stifled by what could go wrong. I'm an overthinker, as many people are when they are ambitious. You think a lot about things. Um, but at the end of the day, I've always forced myself to 
go out on a limb. I'm scared of heights. <laughs> I've always forced myself to rock climb, to do things like zip lining. I'm scared to death of heights, but I force myself to do it so that I can condition myself to be better about it. You just have to posse up and realize at the end of the day, the worst thing that can happen is you don't get the gig. And that would devastate you. Or you don't get to do the thing that you want to do. But what could go right? And I try to remember that. It's scary. I'm not going to lie. It's, it, I can't say it's not scary. I still get nervous and scared about certain situations that I encounter. That will always happen. And as long as I remember it will always happen, I will also remember that I have to push through it. And if I'm willing to push through it, that means that I'm super convicted about it. And no matter what happens at the end of the day, I won't regret it because I follow my conviction. So it's kind of like at the end of the day, the sun's going to come up, the sun's going to go down. <laughs> do what you can do because I truly believe in my heart of hearts that if you can think it, you can achieve it. God wouldn't let you think of, for those who are who are believers in God, and even if you're not believers in the universe and, and the things that happen in the universe, if you can think it, if you can conceive of it, it can happen for you. It's just all about what you're convicted to do. That's it. Wow. But... And then I just want to go back to your childhood. Like, did you always have that conviction? Like, as a little mm. girl, do you remember being convicted about things? Like, I'm going to do this. I don't care <laughs> what my brothers say I can't do or whatever. All right, I have three brothers who are very headstrong and a sister who's also headstrong and was a tomboy. So I was the prissy girl. That's a kid. Um, you know, it's funny. It's funny. My sister is one of the people I admire the most. She's always wanted to be a mother her whole life. She's a teacher right now, and I think she, hopefully she'll be a mother soon. She's found a great guy and her life partner, and they're on a good path. I was never the girl that dreamed of things like weddings and marriage and those types of things. I dreamed of being able to have my own and conquer. <laughs> <laughs> You wanted to be Oprah. I wanted to be Oprah. And not only that, I I think there was some degree, and this is me being all the way raw, all the way honest. <laughs> I never wanted somebody to tell me I couldn't have something. I couldn't do something. Because I encountered that as a child. No, you can't do that. You don't have the money. You don't have the wherewithal. You don't have the clout. No. And I never wanted to be told no. Again. Ever. Um, so I more so dreamed of having my own so that people couldn't say no to me. I know it seems a little... <laughs> seems oh, that's, a little <laughs> that's pretty amazing, though. But um, it's interesting because as you get older, you start to think about things like family and life and kids and things like that. And so it's funny because now I've shifted toward, oh, I want a family. I want a mate in life. I want this. I want that. But my entire younger years were dedicated to having my own and being, and not just for myself. That's the critical part for me. It was more so because I wanted to prop up my family, period, point blank. And I'm so thankful and blessed that I feel like my family's in a good place. They don't need me right now, but there was a time where I could do for them that 
in a way that we didn't have in the in my childhood. And it's nice to be able to experience things with your family that you never thought you could have. Like I was able to take my mother to Hamilton on Broadway. She'd never seen a Broadway play. I was able to just go out and treat my dad the other day in D.C. Um, it doesn't matter what you do. What matters is that you feel like what you do is significant in whatever way that, that means something to you. So for me, it's giving back to my family because they gave so much to me. But the why always has to be greater than just you as an individual. Well, I think that. I do. Because you could be selfish all you want and accomplish a million things, but it can be empty. And I was just talking to a girlfriend who actually works um, for me. Uh, talking to her last night, and she's a brilliant person. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, and although she quote-unquote works for me, she gives me a lot of what I need in terms of a daily job type of thing. But she tries to hold the world up. And I feel like as people, minorities, women, whomever, we try to hold the whole world up. And we're so good at fulfilling needs and taking care of everybody in our circle that sometimes you can forget to take care of yourself. And my mentor, Vicki from Turner, told me one day, she said, save some for you. She's like, I got to save some for me. Save some for you because you can spend your entire life and career focused on everybody else, but you got to save some for yourself because if you don't, everything else goes away. Um, so I'm trying to learn the art of saving some for me and um, focusing on myself too. So it's, it's kind of hard, especially when you're giving. And I think a lot of people are giving. It's not me in particular. It's most people want to give back or want to give to your family or want to give to your loved ones or your significant other. Um, and that's wonderful. But at the same time, don't forget to think about your dreams and your wants and your passions and what will make you feel whole um, before you leave this earth. And I was actually telling Eric before we <laughs> sat down for the interview <laughs> a while ago, and I told the girl that, that works for me, I told her this last night, I said, look, sit down one day, have your music, have your wine, have your vice, whatever it is, and write out the list of things that you absolutely must accomplish before you die in order to feel like you've lived a good life. And I think it'll surprise you because on my list, it surprised me. Can I ask what's on that list? <laughs> on my list, from what I can recall, I need to pull it back out. <laughs> One of them was speak five languages. I love languages. I always have. I speak Spanish. But to speak different languages because I like to understand cultures and understand other people. And it's amazing to me that people can converse using different words and even body language uh, in a way that you can understand or not understand. So if somebody's speaking Spanish without using body language, you might not understand anything they're saying. However, the way they speak is completely understood by everybody in their life. And it's just phenomenal to me that there are different languages that can do that. Um, other ones are probably travel. Um, I would love to live in another country for a year or more just to experience the culture. I think experiencing different cultures and what the world has to offer is so important to me as a person because just because we live in the States doesn't mean that that's how everybody lives. I would love to experience like different foods, cultures, ways of living, um, storytelling, um, just small nuances uh, in terms of the way other people live versus us. 
because all of them are valid. And I'm one of the few, well, I don't want to say few. I'm a person who believes that um, whatever religion people have is authentic and valid. I do not denounce people's religion because just like I grew up Christian and I'm still consider myself Christian, but I'm more spiritual than I am religious. um, I totally believe that Hinduism is valid and Taoism and Buddhism and any other religion of the world. All valid. Yeah. All valid. But I also want to understand what are the tenets of your religion? What do you believe? What are the thought processes and how do you live accordingly? Like I've been to Thailand, I've been to um, Hong Kong, I've been to Guangzhou and um, in China and other places. And to just see people live their authentic selves and live it so religiously in terms of what they believe, not just as it relates to religion, but just their whole life, it's so interesting. Because but for you being born where you were born, you could have a completely different set of beliefs. Completely Very true. different. And I think that's fascinating. So that's on my list. Nice. So I just have a few more questions. Sure. Um, what inspires you to keep you? Mm. You're, a, you're a senior vice president, right? And you're 36 years old, so you're extremely <laughs> young. So what inspires you to keep you driven, to keep you wanting to achieve more? What inspires me and keeps me driven? Um, I ha- I think I have a healthy recognition of the fact that your title is your title. It's what you do, but not who you are. So that keeps me nervous, and it also keeps me grounded. Okay. <laughs> um, I love what I do. I tell people that I love what I do, and that on the days that are hard, I only like what I do. There's never a day that I hate it. Never. That's how I know that I'm living my passion and my purpose. Um, What keeps me inspired is that evolution is guaranteed. Every single day, time is moving. So every single day, something is evolving. Whether it's time, a person, a place, a religion, a this or that. Forward movement happens, whether we like it or not. You can say still if you want to. But if you stay still, you're technically going backwards because time is moving forward. So you've got to um, you got to think about that as well. Um, the things that keep me inspired are I want to fully live the maximum amount of life that God gave me to live. Fully. If I'm able to have kids just because I'm a woman, wonderful. Let's do that. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, you know, I was never a woman who thought, oh, I just want to have kids no matter what. No. If I meet the right life partner, I would love to have kids with that person because it's a byproduct of the love that we have. Wonderful. Great. Um, but it would be great to just experience that because that's what I was built to do as a person. I have those organs and I can do that. Um, I want to... I want to just go balls to the wall in terms of think outlandish things and just try to accomplish them. I don't think I want to work as hard as I've worked coming up for the rest of my life because I think life is about more than work. Yeah. I would love to be able to save up, take off, and live even meagerly um, to some degree and experience different cultures because I think there's a richness in that. So I don't think that I have to live a wealthy life all the time. 
um, in terms of monetary wealth. I think a wealthy life can be the richness of a culture, the richness of uh, people that you encounter, the richness of the experience that you're able to have. And I want to be flexible and open enough to do that. But I know that I have to work to be able to afford that um, to some degree. But I know people who are doing that right now. I know a girl who's a nanny for a very wealthy family in New York who just moved to New Zealand uh, with her husband. And they're 29. Wow. She saved up money. She told me how she did it. And I'm inspired by her. So I'm inspired by people, everyday people who are living their dreams. And as long as you're living your dreams, then you're somebody that I would want to talk to about how you're able to go about it. Because it's going to inspire me to keep pushing for mine. So, so it's important the people you surround yourself with. Absolutely. They say the five people you surround yourself with are, are going to mimic what you become. So if you think about that, if there's any dead weight, cut that off now. <laughs> cut that shit off. Cut it off, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off. Um, I think, I, I don't know who said it, but I remember Will Smith had a quote like that too. But the people you surround yourself with, I, as I get older, I'm very keen on energy. If someone's energy is good and it makes me feel good in their presence, then I'm good with you and we can spend time together. If I feel there's a negative energy or an energy that drains me, then I keep you at a distance. Doesn't mean that I absolutely will never talk to you because I don't think that's something you can avoid, but it just means that you're not about to become one of my close friends. I just keep you at a distance. Energy is so important. So important. So important. And some days, I was telling some the girlfriend that I was out with last night, some days I just feel on. I feel like my energy is just like oozing out of me. And I'm just like, ah, oh, I just feel like I'm me and it's great. And, and I am a full believer that energy attracts energy. Like energy attracts like energy. If you feel like you are incomplete in any degree, and we all feel that way sometimes. Don't get it twisted. I feel that way sometimes. Everybody feels that way. You will attract that energy. You will attract someone who's incomplete into your life. And you guys might latch on to each other to create one complete person. But it might not be the thing that's best for you. So I would say, I would encourage everybody to work on feeling complete and whole and in full on the inside so that you attract that same energy into your life. And it's real. It's not hippie. It's just real. If you feel whole, people will feel that from you and they will want to be around you. Don't get it twisted. People who are incomplete will also want to be around you. <laughs> but you should be able to recognize whether someone's complete or incomplete and figure out if that's going to be a benefit to you or if it's going to detract you. Exactly. Because you can't always, if you pour everything out of you. You're left with nothing. So you you're need left people with nothing. pouring into you. Sometimes incomplete people can get together and it makes everybody better and it works out. You just never know, but you should be attuned to energy and how you feel in their presence. If you leave a conversation or a situation because you feel bad at, at the end of the day, then that's giving you a sign. That's not for you. It doesn't help you. My key thing, there was a book I was reading. It was actually about relationships, and it said, what's the one word you would describe, uh, you would use to describe what you want from a relationship? One word. So what's your, and your one word is? My one word was enhancing. Nice. That's powerful. Doesn't matter what it is. If, if a relationship can enhance my life, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, I'm with it. Period. 
I just have one last question, but mm-hmm. before my last question, I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for the insight you've shared. Like, I've grown. You've enhanced me. <laughs> you've enhanced me, too. That's why we have good energy. From our time together, like you've shared so many valuable things that I think people are going to oh, learn from and you. grow from. Your work ethic, just putting your head down and working hard is something uh. that... So many people, I think, need to hear and realize that nothing comes overnight. And if you put in the work, people will recognize that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for letting me just talk at length about this stuff. Um, You made made this very easy because I was a little nervous, as I told you. But um, you made this very easy. And thank you for your energy and what you brought to this. Seriously. So my last question is, is there anything that we didn't discuss or that I didn't ask you that you want to share? Anything that we didn't discuss, I, I that that sounds like a challenge, and I want to answer it. <laughs> it's like um, the term, Tyler Perry moment. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, the people that are listening to this are going to, going to be people that are interested in like um, pursuing their dreams and careers and things. And creative like endeavors. And creative endeavors. I would. I guess I could just leave with um, just a couple of thoughts that I have on it. Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> Um, never give up on something that you are passionate about. But remember that passion is only one part of the equation. You also must be good at it, right? And if you're good at something and you're passionate about it, then it will lead you to your purpose. If you find yourself having sleepless nights, feeling very emotional about something, um, not being able to shake something, that's your cue from the universe or from God or from both that you need to be listening to that feeling a bit more. And if you listen to that feeling a bit more, you will ultimately figure out what your purpose is. Sometimes you have to just sit there and think. And don't think of the answer. Think of the questions you have. That'll help lead you to what you need to do. There have been so many times in my life, even last night with the friend that I work with, where she's overwhelmed and she's crying at the table at dinner and she never cries. She's the hardest woman I know, the strongest woman I know, the most accomplished woman I know, very successful, multi-millions of dollars successful. She donates 800000 to a random project every once in a while. That kind of successful. But she's overwhelmed and her spirit is overwhelmed. And when you feel that kind of overwhelming sensation, you just have to think and sit. And when you think and sit, my only advice to you is to start writing. It doesn't matter what you write. Sit there and just write. Write your heart's passion. Write your heart's desire. Just keep writing and visit that writing often and think about that writing often and think about how you can connect dots in your life to accomplish whatever it is that your soul needs. And that will get you to where you need to go. Don't worry about, am I getting a promotion tomorrow? Am I getting a raise tomorrow? That stuff is inconsequential. We all are here to live and we are all here to die. It's going to happen. What you need to focus on is the time in between. But be honest, own it, be authentic, and don't let the rules of the world dictate the rules of you. You are your own person and just live by what you think is true and you'll be good for the rest of your life. That's it. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> like, I'm gonna just soak that in. Let that sit with me for a Thanks. moment. 
And I hope the listeners. I spoke a word myself. <laughs> Woo! All right. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate it. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please share it with your community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat. And write a review on iTunes. My goal is to inspire and help as many people as possible. And by you sharing, we will be able to do this together. You can also shoot me an email if you have any suggestions. Thank you for your time.